It's always struck me how the best day of one person's life can be happening on the worst day of someone else's. That you can have a family that is in line at Space Mountain at Disney World, joyful, laughing, and on the same day in the same town, you can have another family in the waiting room waiting to hear that dad didn't make it through the operation. That you can have a young couple driving to the hospital to go and to hold their newborn daughter for the very first time and to meet her for the very first time and on the same day in the very same town there can be a young couple following behind a hearse with a child fitted casket. That on one day, for one bride, that day is joyful. It is the day in which she is going to become one with her beloved. It is the day of her fairy tale that she has been dreaming of. And for another bride, it's the day that she discovers the affair. And these are the groans of a creation that has fallen subject to sin. These are the groans of a creation that has been subjected to futility ever since the, the, the disorder that came into the garden when Adam rejected the design of God. And they set the stage for us of what we should expect in the great judgment. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus describes the scene of his return as all of the nations being gathered before him. And as the nations are gathered before him of every tribe and every tongue and every creed, he begins to separate the sheep to one side and the goats to the other. And for the sheep, for those that are found to be in Christ, those who are found to be citizens of his kingdom, those who are his children, his brothers, his sisters, it is their greatest day. It is the day of unbridled joy and singing and worship. But for those that are found apart from him, for those that are described as the ghosts, those who have lived for themselves and against the design of God, it will be a day of screeching and wailing. A day that is terrible, their worst day. And it's a picture, a picture of what we see more than 3,000 years ago in Exodus chapter 12. It's a picture of what we see happening in Egypt as the final of the plagues, the final of the, the signs of God comes for the liberation of his people. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, we're going to read verses 21 through 42 together. If you are able, once you get there, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 21, God's word says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts within the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. 
And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, or the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds also as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up and their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened bread, cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout the generations. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. At the moment of every judgment, there are some that find that judgment terrible. And there are some that find that judgment wonderful. And that's certainly the case when we come to the plagues of Egypt. For Israel, it was wonderful. It signified the covenant that God had made with his people. It signified the love that God had for his people. It signified the provision that God was made, making for his people. For Egypt, it was terrible. For Egypt, it represented the curse of God having come against them. It, it represented what they never expected, that they were not supreme, that, that their gods were not in control, that, that everything that they understood within their worldview was, was collapsing in on itself, and that it could not stand. But what's interesting is that there's a real sense in Exodus chapter 12 in which both Israel and Egypt stand accused of the very same atrocity. And standing accused of the same atrocity, they stand just as guilty as one another. That Israel is just as guilty before God as Egypt is. Yet when the judge comes, Israel is delivered, ransomed, blessed. And Egypt is condemned, having God come against them. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. What I want us to look at is is a a theme that will find its way across the span of the big spectrum. Of what is it that separates, when the judge comes, the condemned from the redeemed. First, I want us to look at Israel. And in Israel, we see that when the judge comes, the redeemed will be found ready. When the judge comes, the redeemed will be found ready. God gives Moses and Israel very specific instructions as to how they are to prepare for the final plague. 
that God is going to pass over with the, the destroyer, as he describes them, over all the homes of, e- of Egypt. And he tells Israel that if the destroyer, destroyer is to pass over their home, that they must abide by his word. They must abide by his instructions. And so he lays out for them very specific in- instructions. It's going to be a tremendous and terrifying judgment. But even here, even here, we see something that is true about God. That in the midst of judgment, God always offers mercy. With the only exception being the final judgment, wherever you read of judgment offered by God or brought about by God, God at the very same time will offer mercy in its midst. And that's what we see here. God tells his people that if they will take a yearling lamb, a a lamb that is unblemished, and they will ensure that none of the bones are broken, and and they will offer that as a sacrifice, and they will all be within a, a, a contained household and consume the lamb and eat it as a meal together. And if they will take hyssop, hyssop was like a natural plant, and at the end of it would have been almost a sponge like. They would take it and dip it in the blood. And paint the blood of that lamb up the doorposts and the lintel of their home. That when he comes, having abided by his instruction, that the destroyer will pass over and they will be saved. While all those in Egypt, all those who have neglected the word, all of those who have refused the Lord's instruction will instead experience his judgment. And there's a question being asked of Israel here. And it's the very same question that was asked of Noah when Noah was commanded to build the ark before there was a cloud in the sky. And it's the very same question that's being asked to you. We live in in an age in which the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ, has been turned into a mockery. So much so that that many well-meaning, faithful Christians roll their eyes when they even hear the tone because we've heard false predictions and talked about Bitcoin and dragons and all of this foolishness. And so the return of Christ feels as though it's, it's something that's a fairy tale, something that's a story, something that's, a, that's an exaggerated reality used by, by insecure preachers to convict guilty consciences. But the question that's being asked here is will you obey? Will you heed the word of the Lord? How is it that you will live in light of what God has said? When God says that the judge is going to come and the judgment is going to bear down on the creation, how will you live in light of that information? Will you continue on with business as usual, trying to make your life on earth as comfortable as it can be? Or, or, or will you bring your life beneath submission to the instruction, to the command, to the word of God? And their answer. And our answer will be apparent by how they, by how we respond to the instructions that God has given. See, this is how, in in Matthew 25, Jesus says something that can be confusing to all of us who love the Reformation teaching of, of by faith alone. That we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? And what we know is that salvation is not by our works. That salvation is not by our merit. It's not by my righteousness. It is by Christ's work, by Christ's righteousness. But you know what Jesus says in Matthew 25? That when the nations are gathered before him and he he separates the sheep from the goats, that the way that he will separate them is the sheep will be those that will be given a drink of water to those who are thirsty. That he'll be given a meal to those who are hungry. That they'll be giving a home, a shelter, a warm place to be for those who are homeless. 
But Jesus does that without in the least undermining the fact that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one gets to the Father except through him. He's, he's giving us this, this metric by which we are to evaluate our own lives without undercutting the reality of salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. How is that? Salvation comes by faith in God to provide a way, right? And that's how you're saved from the plague of the firstborn. And that's how you're saved from the plague of mankind, death. But then faith in God's word activates obedience to God's word. Faith in God's way activates obedience to God's word. So you're saved by grace. That's God's provision of the way through faith, your belief that God's way and God's way alone saves. And then that faith is proven, showing you actually believe what you say you believe by your obedience to God's word. And I use the word ready, that the redeemed will be found ready. I use the word ready very specifically. That this isn't a someday, future, hopefully, maybe I'll get around to it type of obedience. This isn't a once I'm married, once I graduate from high school, once I graduate from college, once I'm financially established type of obedience. This is an obedience that is called to be vigilant, an obedience that is called to be radically urgent. That's what readiness requires, isn't it? Readiness requires vigilance. It's to have the type of faith that makes indifference and laziness impossible. You see, they were supposed to eat this meal in a very particular way. That when they, when they slaughtered the Passover lamb and they began to, to eat the Passover lamb, there was a very particular instruction. I want you to look at verse 11 with me. Verse 11 says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Do you see this? That, that the way that they're supposed to eat it is they're supposed to have a belt on. Now, the idea of the belt, if, if you ever heard the term gird your loins, right? Like that's, that's, that's kind of nebulous to us here in the, you know, Levi's generation. But what that meant is they wore robes and they would wear a belt. And if they were going to have to run or if they were going to go into battle, they would take their robe and they would stuff it up into their belt so that their legs were free and they would be able to move quickly. He says to have your, your staff, in other words, be ready as you eat the meal at a moment's notice to be able to go and to, to take your livestock and to leave Egypt. He says to have your sword, be ready, be ready to face what you need to face, be ready to go out into the Sinai wilderness, eat it in a state of vigilance, eat it in a state of readiness. This is like a Hebrew sonic, right? Like This is like, this is like the Egyptian version of the McDonald's drive through that they're supposed to be ready to go. That if you believe that God is holy and you believe that God has spoken and you believe that you will be held accountable before a holy God for what he has said, that you ha don't just get around to obedience. You are vigilant. You are ready. You are urgent. And this is why Jesus says, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. Delaying obedience proves that God isn't your top priority. Delaying obedience proves that God is not, is not your top priority. It's proof that there's something or someone that you want more or trust more or love more than him. It's proof that you don't actually believe that God is holy and that you don't actually believe that God has spoken and that you don't actually believe that God will uphold his word. 
It's, it's planning obedience for one day and assuming disobedience for today. It's being okay of being in the presence of a holy God and knowing I'm not going to be obedient today. Maybe one day, hopefully one day, I'll get around to it. But today, today I can just assume I'm going to be disobedient. It is to live in negligence of the reality of the accountability that the holiness of God brings and the urgency of the judge's return. Do you not believe that you should be ready when your judge comes? Do you not believe him when he says that he is coming quickly? No, the redeemed, they believe. And the redeemed will be ready. That is, they will be found beneath the blood. They'll be found beneath the blood. That's the concept of the Passover, is it not? God's instruction calls for Israel to take hyssop and to watch, wash the doorpost and to cover the doorpost in the blood of the lamb. And the point of the blood on the doorframe is not so God can see. God already sees the heart of man. God already sees the mind of man. God already sees the perspective and posture that man has before him. That's not the point. The point is so that Israel can see. It's so that Israel can see. It's so that they can see that they are just as guilty before God as the Egyptians are. It's so that they can see that they have rebelled against God in a way that is similar to what the Egyptians have done. It is to see that they are under the plague of death, just as Egypt is on. That their only hope for survival, their only hope for deliverance, is that God himself delivers them. See, they were accused and they were guilty of the same atrocity, but they were offered mercy. They were offered mercy that if they would trust God's way and obey God's word, it wouldn't be at the cost of their blood. It would be at the cost of the blood of another. That's why we call them redeemed. They've been ransomed. They've been ransomed. God made a payment to God on their behalf with the blood of his own firstborn son here made clear and represented and foreshadowed by the blood of an unblemished lamb. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That God has painted the doors of the houses of his redeemed with the blood of Jesus' cross. And it is declaring today the very same thing that it was declaring more than 3,000 years ago. That the judgment of God has already fallen in my case. But the judgment of God did not fall against me. The judgment of God fell against the Lamb. The judgment for me and the judgment for the church and the judgment of the kingdom has already passed. It has already come. It has already fallen. And y'all, that's the freedom that we live in. That's the freedom that we live in. Our judgment has fallen upon the Passover Lamb. So we've been made ready by God himself. We're just waiting to sing our song Worthy is the lamb who was slain. But there's another side to the story. There's another side to the story. That for the redeemed, it's the moment that they've been waiting for. But for the Egyptians, it's the moment they assumed would never come. For Pharaoh, it was the assumption that, that God was not who he said he would. It was the assumption of Pharaoh that, that he was more sovereign, that he was greater, that he was stronger, that, that he was more in control, that he had no fear, that, that the God of the Hebrews could not bring judgment upon him. So he hardened his heart 
time and again. And this is what we see demonstrated graphically for us in verses 29 and 30. That when the judge comes, the hardened will be left wailing. That when the judge comes, the hardened will be left wailing. It's really a remarkable picture. Pharaoh has seen the exact same signs as Israel has. That the Egyptians have seen the same demonstrations of God's sovereignty and God's might and God's, God's power as Israel has. In fact, you can even say they've seen it more graphically. Because we know that most of the, the plagues did not go into the Goshen Valley. God set a barrier up around his people and defended them and protected them. But here was Egypt, and Egypt had experienced them in the fullness in their, of their grotesqueness. They, they had experienced famine, and they had experienced pestilence, and they had had their crops beaten down by hell and then eaten by locusts. They had experienced this very profoundly. And God had given, God had given through Moses a very specific message to Pharaoh. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 21, what you'll see there is that God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh something very specific. He says, Israel is my firstborn son. I've made them my family. I've made them my people. I've made them my children. And if you will not release my firstborn son, then I will strike down your firstborn son. And by grace, with patience and mercy, there's been ten demonstrations already of God's might before Pharaoh that Pharaoh would release the firstborn son of Israel. So this is not an irrational God flying off the handle. This is justice being upheld. This is God's word being upheld. This is God's promises coming to be. This is God's integrity being proven. That when he brings judgment against Pharaoh, he's bringing judgment against Egypt. He's already offered mercy. He's already offered, offered wisdom. They had rejected his word. They had rejected his message. They had assumed that it would not come to be. They had assumed that it would not come to pass. And Pharaoh's assumption is the assumption of our culture. It's the assumption of our day. Do you know who is evangelizing your children? It's not the Muslims. And it's not the Mormons. And it's not the Jehovah's Witnesses. It's the nuns. And I'm not talking about the Catholic nuns. I'm talking about the religious nuns. Over the last... 20 years, did you know that those who mark no religious affiliation in the United States of America has more than doubled? So that it represents 25% of our population? That one in four, one in four people that you meet in the street, on the streets of the United States of America do not believe that there is a God. That they have no religious affiliation. And they are convincing the rising generation. They are convincing my children and yours and your grandchildren and our youth. They are convincing them that the only way to be intellectual, the only way to be, the only way to be enlightened, the only way to not be ignorant is to uphold some idea that we are given over to naturalist laws and naturalist laws alone. In other words, in other words... Their assumption is that the word of God will fail. Their assumption is, is that God is, is impotent, that God is unable and unwilling and, and not capable of bringing a judgment against his people. Their assumption is, is that he will never come, that the judge will never arrive. Their assumption is, is that nothing that we do in the here and now is answerable to one who is far greater than us. 
And so child after child, college student after college student, high school student after high school student is seeing the evidence. They are seeing what God has made and what God has designed. They are having eternity, having been written on their heart, having witnessed or or having heard the witness of, of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, and they are rejecting him. They are rejecting him. So we can relate to Pharaoh's anguish that night. We can relate to Pharaoh's anguish that night. It's an anguish that many of us may very well hear on the day of judgment. R.C. Sproul, he says that we would not be able to listen to five seconds of the wailing of the damned. That that night, Pharaoh goes to bed, and in the middle of the night, he is awakened. And he's awakened to the realization that his demigod successor son, the one who was supposed to be the next in line to represent the divine to man, has been killed, slain in his bed by the angel of death, that the destroyer has visited the house of the mightiest man on earth, and the mightiest man on earth had not a finger to raise before him. And like the scream of agony of a man set on fire, all of the Egyptians welled together. In a day of of riots and chaos, you can imagine the pandemonium that filled the streets of Memphis that night. See, Judgment comes when we have a high view of ourselves and a low view of sin. Judgment comes when we have a high view of ourselves and a low view of sin. Thomas Watson says, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so it's for one, the other, or both of these reasons that we harden our hearts before God, that, that we believe that we are, are too good or are too, too transcendent to be messed with by a God, or we believe that our sin is so insignificant that we will never answer for it. But as Pharaoh held his dead son in his arms that day, there was no ambiguity. There was no confusion in his mind about how severe his sin was, about how lowly his status was. And he calls out to Moses, go, but before you go, bless me in the name of your Lord. Bless me in the name of the one who is far greater, far above, the one to whom I answer. You know, I thought a lot this week about what it would mean that Gracie Kate, my firstborn, would die and face judgment because I had refused to believe. Because I had refused to take God seriously. Because I had refused to be convinced that God would in fact uphold his word. See, this, this boy, he didn't make the decision, did he? This boy, we're never told of his posture or his stance toward Yahweh. We're never told whether or not he hardened his heart or if he'd ever even heard any of the things or if he was just up in his room in the, in the great castle of, of Egypt playing with his Legos and his G.I. Joes. We don't know. But his father, his father refused to uphold the word of God. And his father refused to take the word of God seriously. And his father refused to believe that he would be answerable before God. And I wonder this morning, how many of our children will inherit death because of our hardened hearts? How many times have they heard us justify our sins or live as though we are unaccountable to God only to grow up and to do the very same thing themselves? See, it's remarkable how personal the plague is on this final plague by God. And judgment is personally given. We need to understand that. All the other plagues, 
It shows God is having an indirect relationship. He, he sends the hell. He, he sends the locusts. He sends the flies, the gnats. They are the pestilence that comes against the land. But here he says, I am going to come. I am going to search house to house. I am going to look. I am going to pass over. Or I am going to bring judgment. And that's the picture of Matthew 25, is it not? That as the nations are gathered before the returned Christ that he will go person by person, personally saying, this is my son, well done, my good and faithful servant. And this, I do not know him, depart from me, for I never knew you. That Jesus says that like a thief in the night, he will come to judge the world. And on that night, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. And the question is, will you declare it as Moses having been delivered? Or will you declare him, Lord, as Pharaoh having been condemned? But it wasn't just a night of wailing. It was at the very same time a night of singing. That on the other side of the hospital, a baby was born, a nation began, a promise was kept. That God had promised that they would be delivered from Egypt. And now they were being delivered from Egypt, having plundered Egypt with a, a wealth that would have been unimaginable for a slave nation. God had promised that they would become a nation more numerous than the skies. And they were headed into the Sinai wilderness now, more than a million strong. And God had promised that they would be a nation that would be a blessing to every other nation. Now I want you to look at something. Maybe you've never noticed this as you've read the scriptures before because it's, it's subtle, it's sneaky, and it's awesome. It's awesome. All right, verse 38. you see what it says? A mixed multitude also went up with him. Now I'd like just to pause for a second and say, that's us, y'all. We are Gentiles. We are the nations. We are Egypt. And here is God with his most sworn enemy, the ones that have oppressed his people and come against them. And some of them had seen, and some of them had repented, and some of them had their hearts softened, and some of them had been, had been circumcised, and some of them had obeyed the word of the Lord and painted the lintels of their house. Some of them, so that even among his most sworn enemy, God saves a remnant out of Egypt. That here, here we already see the great commission coming to bear. We see the nation of Israel being a blessing to all nations. A picture that will find its fulfillment in the Christ who collects the nations unto himself. You see, when the judge comes, the fulfillment will be forever celebrated. When the judgment comes, the fulfillment will be forever celebrated. This became the Passover in which they would reenact their salvation and their deliverance. In fact, if you were to read chapters 11 through 13, what you're going to read mostly, mostly is about the commemoration, the memorial of this great Passover. But this wasn't just a past liberation that they were celebrating. This wasn't just a past exodus that they were commemorating. It was also the promise of a future one. You see, the Passover would give way to the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper, brothers and sisters, is only for a time because it is going to give way to the wedding supper. And on that day, when the judge comes, his fulfillment will commence the feast. And the celebration will never end. Let's pray to the Lord. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. 
I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.